Okay, sorry for that first episode being kind of like, uh, just inconfident. I guess, um, I'm much more comfortable with the next thinker that we're going to talk about, Kierkegaard. And, um, I guess some preliminary information is that Kierkegaard really hated the time period that he lived in. He was a Danish philosopher who, um, lived from 1813 to 1855, kind of thought of as, like, the granddad of existentialism. But yeah, he was really dissatisfied that in his time, post-Enlightenment, you know, Europe, uh, people really thought that they understood everything and that everything was, all meaning in life was reducible to, um, you know, schematizations and other, like, systems. He famously, and you will hear this in, like, any course that you take, that you read Kierkegaard, that they will tell you how much he despised Hegel and how (laughs) Hegel's system... Um, I have not read Hegel. I don't think I ever will, because I've heard that it's just absolutely terrible to read. Very difficult, whatever, all that stuff. But, um, yeah, Kierkegaard really despises him. But Fear and Trembling, the book that we're talking about, actually focuses on faith and people who understand faith as opposed to, like, you know, uh, reason, science, uh, matters of that nature. He does have books on that subject, but that's not the focus of this project. So, um, so, like, Kierkegaard, when he... Uh, in Fear and Trembling, he's focusing on people who think that they understand the Bible or just messages of faith when they really, truly do not. Um, he focuses on the story of Abraham, who um, is like a significant or a, like biblical figure. He is um, described in like Adam's lineage as being just, yeah, that he's going to be important. Um, not gonna go over his whole biblical, like, tales, but, uh, for his devotion to God, God promises land his progeny, which is, like, a common, like, thing for God to promise, but the problem is that him and his wife Sarah can't conceive a child, but, uh, they do have a slave, and just because, like, you know, Abraham's stressed that he won't have a child, um, Sarah allows him to have a child with the slave Hagar, and um, the child's name is Ishmael. Um, well, life continues for a bit. Sarah is really mean to Hagar and Ishmael. Hagar runs away at one point, then God tells her to come back. But Abraham gets really, really old. I think he's like over a hundred before he has his own like child. But um, he still believes that God will deliver for him. Eventually, he gets a message from God saying that he can have a child, and they should know that he's like over a hundred and that like um in the bible for some reason adam and his um direct lineage like the lifespans that they lived were like i don't know i think like adam's was like over 800 years and it kind of like diminished with each generation so abraham being a hundred it's not really like a like he's stressed that he won't have a child but also people just in the bible lived really long times in this early like part of it and uh so then he does get the child and he names it Isaac but then God like I don't know how old Isaac is but then God's like come to this mountain and bring your child so he does it and when he gets like to the top of it God's like all right kill it and um Abraham is obviously under he's distressed by this request he's like this is my only heir I waited all these years I couldn't have a child and then you give us a child I have to kill it but at the same time he understands and trusts in God 
well, he doesn't understand God. He understands that, like, God's will is, like, you know, supreme. So then he um, willingly, he, like, is fully intending to sacrifice his child, and he has to, like, kill him himself, and God sees this and is like, wait, no, don't kill him. And um, I think they sacrifice uh, an animal instead in the place of Isaac. But, um, yeah, this is just a story in the Bible that fear and trembling is fundamentally um, playing with understandings of. Uh, particularly, he Kierkegaard has a lot of admiration for Abraham in this story. And he sees that in Abraham, you see an example of faith that's like, one, it's not as simple as people understand it. And two, it's like radical. Like, it's very hard to process Abraham and like really understand what his faith means. Some, like, groundwork for uh, how Kierkegaard does his philosophy slash theology is that um, his focus is uh, on the individual as a site of, like, reflection and, like, as a main site of meaning and, like, experience and all that. He posits that, like, the relationship that one has with God is, um, like, the most basic unit in a kind of way. It's not the best word to describe that, but um, it's he'll he'll build a hierarchy where one's relationship to God is the most important relationship in one's life, regardless of um their cultural and ethical, which he'll call universal duties. And so um, fear and trembling, just a rundown of what the book is about is is about something he calls the teleological suspension of the ethical and um what he means by this and like kind of like uh not so you know a more concise rundown is that there is a higher end in life again referring to that relationship between individual and god that that relationship has a higher end and because it does Abraham is justified even though he was going to um, sacrifice his son. Like, Abraham's relationship to God is what makes his choice to kill Isaac or his intention to kill Isaac a sacrifice instead of murder. And this is important because in this moment, it's not as if um, Abraham knew that he wasn't going to kill his son. So when people talk about, like, uh, or people like preachers when they preach about when they would teach about the understandings of um this biblical story, Kierkegaard would particularly get upset that they would mention that like this was a trial because when you frame things as um being a trial, it has like this way of um becoming less real um in epistemology there's like uh, they describe this phenomenon called cognitive penetration, which is like this kind of like it's like, um, to put simply, it's like when you're angry at some, someone and, like, you know that you're doing something or your perceptions are affected by that anger. It's like um, Becky, Garrett, and Tammy all, like, like, you hear from three different people. They all tell you that um, Greg is angry at you. So then you go to see Greg and, like, Greg's just doing his normal, like, Greg things and like you know he just looks like Greg but because you already have this idea that he might be angry at you you perceive his like normal Greg face as like angry Greg face you know 
So um, in the same way, by saying that something is a trial, you kind of like, I mean, Kierkegaard says it's not faith. Like you're, you don't really believe it's the seriousness of what's happening. And so in that way, Abraham is like actually really tough to understand. It's really not tough to understand that he would just kill his only heir just through his like relationship with God because like ethically like we'd be putting him behind bars like Abraham would be in jail so Kierkegaard describes this as um one to be faithful one needs to infinitely resign material existence and again by that he just means like um realizing the hierarchy that the eternal God your relationship with God is far more important than um your material existence and this is like a particularly painful process to realize that to renounce everything like that like to kill your own son your only heir after being like a hundred years old i don't even know when he was gonna die but like that's still a very long time that's a very painful process and you don't know that you're gonna get something commensurable for it i mean you do in the sense that um, your your relationship with God is everything. Like you are getting that, you're getting everything back, but materially you don't know what you're getting back. So to make that choice, uh, Kierkegaard describes that as true faith. Um, and one particular story that um, I want to focus on is Kierkegaard pulls a book or pulls a story from the book of Tabit about a girl named Sarah. I want to, with this project, I want to, like, posit that there's a way to read this story in a feminist, um, they're taking, like, a, re- a feminist rereading of this story, even though there are, like, very, <laughs> there are very problematic, like, implications in this, it's a biblical story, like, we don't need to really be surprised by this, but, like, there's a very, pro- there's a very prominent, like, patriarchal, um, just, like, thoughts and ideas present in the story and um in this the story of sarah is that she is a girl who all of her grooms at this point she's had seven die the night after their marriage in the bridal chamber because she's cursed or has some something that you know just won't let her be married and kierkegaard describes sarah as the most defrauded girl because she can't experience this like great joy of getting married or to give herself to a husband which we're gonna like pause right now and like realize that like it is not the greatest joy in the girl's life anyone's life for that matter to be married and to quote unquote give themselves again that goes back to um Adam and Eve and God's uh God saying, you know, that women will serve their husbands. There is more in life to that. We're going to reject that flat out, but that Kierkegaard says she's the most defrauded girl within his book. And so, Guy comes along, Tobias, who's like, I'll marry her even though I might die. And Kierkegaard, you know, at this point, Kierkegaard makes a point to say that, like, if you were normally telling this story, like, in his time, you would focus on Tobias for being brave enough to marry a girl who all of her grooms die. But Kierkegaard says that he's going to focus on Sarah and not Tobias, because Sarah still believes somehow that she will get a groom and she will be able to be 
you know, to experience this, like, highest bliss that he thinks that, um, marriage is for, um, a, a girl. So, like, a quote I, I find very, <laughs> it's, it's funny, but, like, in a weird way. A quote from the book says, Her I shall approach as I have never approached any girl or felt tempted in thought to approach anyone about who I have, uh, read. So here he's just, like, saying that, like, he thinks she's such an exemplar of faith that, like, I mean, first of all, he's drawing shock at, like, you know, the fact that it's a girl, first of all, but, um, about anyone who's he's ever read about, like, this is just, she's just, like, um, an important figure for him. And, um, yeah, her ability just to believe that she will find happiness is essentially what faith is, because materially, if you look at the odds, like, uh, seven of your grooms died in your bridal chamber. Like, I guess w- w- what's gonna happen to eight? Like, let's all put a bet on it. And like, whatever kingdom this is. Oh, wait, this is a book from the Bible. Wherever, like, you know, let's just put a bet on um, what's gonna happen to number eight. Like, I don't think any of us would say that he would survive. But um, uh, I mean, it's not implied that she's like killing them either. But um, the reason why I think this can be like apply to feminism and or just like make feminism like spirituality is really what I intend to do is I'm going to argue that like this fundamental movement of um taking your ethical universal considerations and putting them aside for like a higher telos and it being like this extremely personal relationship is essentially like what feminism is in some senses and to like I'll fully develop it in the next section when we talk about an actual feminist theologian, because I am not one, but um, Rosemary Radford Ruther fundamentally does the same move in her rereading of um, Genesis, as well as um, the story of Jesus. But um, essentially, yeah, I'm going to argue that feminism is exactly, not exactly, but is analogous in some ways to faith, that one can be oriented towards the goals of eradicating the patriarchy and it can be greater than one's ethical cultural universal surroundings um i'll specifically focus here well i'm going to lift from kierkegaard well kierkegaard is really helpful for this goal because um kierkegaard talks about that there's this like unspeakability that characterizes relationships of the nature um where they can't be like expressed ethically like like abraham again would be a murderer he'd be in jail for killing his son there is this unspeakability where he can't he can't disclose his relationship to god to like like the police are knocking his door like like hello like um you tried to kill your son we're gonna take you to jail like there's a he like if he said god told me to he'd be in jail but um there's like this like um there's no cultural I think he called, Kierkegaard calls it cultural mediation, but there's no cultural explanation that will get you out of um, that murder sentence. And I will argue that feminism has, like, or, like, there, there are aspects of feminism that have, like, the same, the same, like, um, phenomenon occurring. I'm specifically going to reference a lecture from a professor I had, this, so this being fall semester 2019, um, Amelia Bachrock from her course, Intro to Gender Studies, Gender and Feminist Studies, and we uh, talked about a, f- a prominent um, Muslim feminist 
Mona out the way. And uh, Mona, she tells this story about um, a woman who, uh, she's, um, she's married, she has a Muslim woman, has an undesirable sexual experience with um, her husband, and she feels as if her husband, when they have sex, that she, he doesn't want her to climax, and it's all about him getting off, and then after that he leaves. After they have sex, the woman prays, and she is so moved by prayer that she feels spiritually fulfilled, and it kind of like um, is a direct like you know juxtaposition to like climax or like a her having an orgasm and getting um fulfilled from religion, not in the same sense, like not like she's having an orgasm from religion. That's that much is very clear, but like um just to clarify that she's she's getting um fulfilled in like a spiritual way, and then she like carries on her duties and she does all her responsibilities of that society expects of her um but what's why this is um analogous to the movement Kierkegaard does or depicts is that there's the same notion of unspeakability she can't uh this woman doesn't have like an outlet to vent or like to say or she doesn't confront her husband um or she doesn't like pull out a gun and like rob a bank like she there's this unspeakability in the sense that she must mediate her cultural and ethical surroundings and she goes to God. And like some would call this a sublimation, but ultimately what this is is um right, it's like saying that my relationship to God is enough to fulfill me. And that is essentially the movement that Sarah does in Fear and Trembling. And um while this is like I will make the distinction though that while I think feminism as a whole can be, like, seen to have this framework, it is much easier to see in, like, cultures that would be um, thought to be more conservative or against, like, the Western, like, I don't know, neoliberal, Christian, like, you know, like, uh, just the Western world. I'm using metonymies, they're not very good, but... um, So... Yeah, we we do have to talk about this. I'm going to spend more time on this because um there's a, because we I opened this talking about feminism and theology and how they don't really go together. But at this point, there also needs to be talk about um conservative religions and then like versus modernity or like that binary as well. Cuz cuz I will say that when you talk about cultural and ethical suspension for like the theological, you can't just like brush over the cultural and ethical. So um I think it is important to note that for people who are in what would be considered more rigid um, like uh, cultures, and I am, again, I have to cite our lectures from Professor Bachrock's class for this understanding, but um, in these cultures that like agency is typically expressed in a way that we in the West wouldn't say it is being expressed, period. But um, it's easier to see how this movement might uh, be done. But I guess in the next section, that that brings us to the next section, how I'm going to argue that feminism and the vision of the racket patriarchy can ultimately function as this form of spirituality. And so just to like wrap everything up, Kierkegaard, granddad of existentialism, he focuses on the individual and the relationship to God and the relation and then says that is more important than the relationship to ethical universal surroundings. Uh, 
uses the story of Sarah, a girl who cannot get married because she is cursed or has some affliction where all her grooms will die after um, the night of their marriage. Yet she still has faith that she will be delivered bliss. And I'm arguing that feminism can be thought to do a similar movement where one's um, cultural, ethical, universal situation is being um, theologi- is theologically lesser than the goals of eradicated patriarchy. And with the caveat of mentioning that this is a movement that is different as well as just easier to see in cultures that are thought to be traditional, conservative, and where agency is expressed in different ways than we assume it can be expressed in the West. And in the next episode, we're going to focus on Rosemary Radford Ruther and her rereading of the story of Genesis. And I'm going to there complete the argument of why it just makes more sense. I'm sorry for like doing that, but it just makes more sense to make this argument in the context of um, Ruther than it does to just lay everything out here and then have to like go back and like remember what I specifically said and like, yeah. And I guess um, the last little note I will say is because I think it's important because no one like tells you this is um, Kierkegaard as an author, I'm going to say that like if you were going to read any of the things that I like I'm talking about here just to like be like, oh, is this actually, you know, (laughs) if he do a good job, I would say if you're going to read Kierkegaard, Read the translator's introduction slash the translator's note. Uh, use online sources because although he calls his work simple, I personally find it very difficult to read, very difficult to get into. Uh, the book that we just read in another class called The Concept of, of Anxiety is absolutely awful to read. Like, um, not that I didn't enjoy the book. I've They've been some of the most enriching books I've had in my education, but I would suggest that if you're going to read Kierkegaard to um maybe like if you're a student sign up for a course where like they like if you sign up for a course that's about like secularism or like modern Christianity it's probably gonna read Kierkegaard like I I signed up for three uh, theology courses here and all of them have read a different book of Kierkegaard so he's quite popular at least at Oberlin but like I would suggest that you get the most out of these books by, like, approaching a resource, because, like, otherwise, he's dense, and although he says that he's not pretentious, like, like Kierkegaard is pretentious, like, <laughs> he's, he really, he really, like, tries to rag on people for being, like, extra, and Kierkegaard is just, like, he's the most extra, like, he, in his attempt to prove how not extra, not, and not verbose that he is, he ultimately just is doing what he is accusing them of, but in a really cool way, in a really, like, insightful way. Like, a lot of his books are um, meta-commentaries on genre. Like, Fear and Trembling is a commentary on um, stories and, like, understandings through stories and how we relay information, how we dislike... uh, It focuses a lot on, like, tragic heroes and how heroes are ethically disclosed how we say the intentions and the internal processings of heroes and that's why like it's harder to be faithful because you don't necessarily get to explain yourself in that way and um the concept of anxiety and sickness and the death are commentaries on um 
uh, I would say commentaries on the genre of psychology. I'm going to leave it at that and end the episode because I just wrote an essay on this and I don't want to talk about it again. But again, it's really enriching, really great stuff. And just like use a resource if you're going to like read it. It will just make your life easier. And uh, goodbye.